Alright, so we are in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. We have been in this series now, our, this is our sixth week, called Seeing the Unseen. And it covers who Elisha was, what he did, how he interacted with the world, and also the people that he interacted with around him. And today we're going to see two of those people. Really, this chapter, 2 Kings chapter 5, is a contrast between two different people. Between Naaman and Gehazi. Naaman was a very powerful, very wealthy, very influential person. He had people that respected him. He was very, had a lot of money. I say basically Scrooge McDuck money. Go diving in it, right? He had it all, right? And we see someone like that and we think that person has it all figured out, right? They got the life. But is that the case? No. And then we're introduced to another person, Gehazi. And Gehazi, we were introduced to him last week, but he's a servant to Elisha. So he's kind of like in training to become a prophet. He's there all the time doing whatever Elisha needs. We even saw him last week run 20 miles and back um, because Elisha needed him to do it. So this guy's very religious. He's a servant. He, he serves other people. So then we think, well, maybe he has it all figured out. Wrong again. We're going to learn that both of these guys had something to learn, a lesson to learn that hopefully we can learn too because it can be a hard lesson. And I hope that you will learn it here so that you don't have to experience it yourself. See what I'm talking about here in just a minute. So we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a very long chapter, so we're not going to be able to look at every single verse, but every verse and every word is important. So read it on your own, and we're going to have the important ones up here. You can follow along on your phone or in your Bible as well. So we're introduced now to Naaman in 2 Kings 5 verse 1. It says that now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. So he's got it made, right? This guy is a war hero. He's the top general in all of the nation of Aram. I picture him as someone like a General Petraeus. This guy's a hardened soldier. He has been there through wars and he has had victory. People respect him. And when he talks, everyone listens. When he tells somebody what to do, they do it. For fear of their life in that day. He was the top general. Even the king was his friend and respected him. He was a great man, it says. And he was wealthy, as we'll learn here in a little bit. He had everything. Except there was something else going on in his life. But he had leprosy. Hmm. Now, this word leprosy in the Bible is, is a kind of a catch-all for a lot of different skin diseases that he could have had. And what we call leprosy today is Hansen's disease. And actually, there's no evidence that Hansen's disease existed in this part of the world at this time. So it was probably some other kind of skin disease, because that's what the term really means in the Hebrew. It's just any type of skin condition that he has. And it was something that was very bad at the time, because they no, had no idea how to treat different things. So it could have been something, if you're a dermatologist, you'll know more than me, but it could have been something like scabies, or, or some kind of skin condition that they had no treatment for. Just kept getting worse. And we're, we're told later that he had one spot, so it was just starting out. And this would have been worse than having a skin condition because, you know, it would at some point disfigure him and make him look differently. And he was highly respected, influential, and, and that could influence that. And at the time, it was considered to be cursed if you had a skin condition like that. You were under God's curse and you would often be um, cast out and considered an outcast. So here is Naaman, a great man, highly respected, powerful, rich, but yet he has this issue. He knows it's a problem. And what's amazing for them is that this man was the, in Aram. 
He was not an Israelite. He was not part of the people of God. He didn't know God. Even though it says that God gave him victory, he didn't know God personally. And yet it's this that leads him into an encounter with God so he can learn the truth about God and the truth that we will learn today. But it took a major issue. It took a skin condition. And that's how it often is with us. Some of you in here are, are doing pretty well. You're wealthy. You, you may live in Stapleton. You got it made, right? That's what the world says. You got the house. You got the kids. You got the dog. Life is good. And then something happens. Maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's something going on with a child. Maybe it's in your family. Something's happening to you and you realize, uh-oh, I've got a problem. Some of you here are here today and it's your first time in a church and you're thinking, I think it's crazy, but I'll check it out because I need some help. Even though other people would say, oh, your life looks great, you realize, no, 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 there's something going on that other people don't see. That's what was going on now with Naaman. Now, I have a map for you here so you can see these nations here. And, and Israel is uh, to the southwest. This is the Sea of Galilee. Samaria is the capital of Israel, and most of our story is going to take place there. But Aram is modern-day Syria. Some of your versions may even say Syria because that's the Greek term for this nation. And that is where... Uh, Naaman, our general, is from. Now, Aram and Israel had been warring for a couple generations. They had been fighting back and forth. And in fact, Naaman had had some victories over Israel and had captured some slaves. That's what happened in war back then. You'd win a victory and you would take the people that were living there at home as your slaves. Uh, Currently, when our story takes place, this is probably a period of peace. There was a treaty that there was not going to be any fighting, so there's peace between the two nations. But... Because Naaman had won some victories and was this this great general, he had taken some of those slaves for himself. And in particular, he had this young girl, and she probably wasn't more than a teenager, probably younger than that. And she uh, was given to his wife as a servant. And she hears about Naaman's leprosy, his skin disease. Now, I want you to notice the servants and the masters in this story. That's very important for what's going on in this story. But this young girl, the servant to Naaman's wife, says, Hey, you need to tell Naaman that there is a man of God in Israel who can heal you. Who's that man of God? Elisha. It's the prophet. He had a big reputation. So even though this little girl had been captured and and, and was a slave in Aram, she knew that there was this powerful man of God because these stories had been told about the miracles he had performed. She tells her master, you need to go find him and get healed. So, like what we do when we have these issues in our life, we're willing to try anything. There's a bang right there. Willing to try anything, right? Uh, Am I popping a little bit? Um, So, so Naaman's saying, hey, it's worth a shot. This isn't my religion. This isn't my God, but I will try anything. Like I said, some of you are here right now like that. You're like, I don't know about Christianity. I don't know about all this Bible stuff, but maybe it'll help. Maybe it'll help. That's where Naaman is. So he goes and approaches his his king, probably the only one higher than him in the entire nation, and he talks to the king of Aram, and he says, I want to find this man of God, and I want to be healed. Can I go? And the king doesn't just say go. He, He says, yeah, you can go. But on top of that, I'm going to send you a personal letter so that you can make sure that you get healed by this man of God. So this is the letter that he writes to the king of Israel. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Sends this to the king of Israel. So the king gets this in Samaria and he freaks out. 
He tears his clothes because he thinks war is coming. What? Why does he think that? Because he can't heal anybody. He knows he can't cure this guy's leprosy. He's like, what the heck am I going to do? I'm a king. uh, Maybe this is a pretense to war. Maybe they're doing this just so that they can start up a conflict. And and at the time, Aram had this strong, powerful army. And and this king Naaman was the powerful general of all of it. He was freaked out. He says, oh no, what are we going to do? But Elisha was nearby. He always happens to be nearby in these stories. Probably he was living in Samaria at the time. And he heard about this this king in his palace. And he says, I got this. I got this. Now, what I find really interesting about how Naaman and how the king of Aram and even the king of Israel went about this was that Naaman and the king of Aram thought that their power and their influence could get for them healing. That they thought they could use this power, use this influence to get something. And then they thought that this prophet of God, this man of God, must be controlled by the state. Because kings are over prophets. They just thought that the king, that God himself, was controlled by the powers that be. How wrong they were. And the king of Israel was the first to realize that. No, no, no. Your power, your influence will do nothing. Because our God is not controlled by a nation or by a king. But Elisha hears about this and says, I'll step in. I got this. You don't need to tear your clothes. I, I got this. So, Naaman decides it's time to go to Samaria. And since Naaman is so powerful, he gets his soldiers and he gets his servants and they get chariots and horses and a huge caravan together of all these different people. Because he's going to show his influence and power so that he can be healed, right? And not only that, he brings along a lot of money. It says that he brought 10 talents of silver and a talent was the weight that a human could carry, probably about 75 pounds. So there's 750 pounds of silver. Plus, it says 6,000 gold coins. Now, this w- it only took two talents of silver to buy an entire city. So if you bring in 10 talents of silver, um, one person estimates, uh, one scholar estimates that this was probably about $750 million in today's dollars. So if he brought this $750 million so that he could buy the healing, how much money did he have left at home? <laughs> right? This guy is loaded. He's a one percenter. He's got it all. But he, of course, knows that all that's not enough. He needs to be healed. So he's going to use all his power, all his influence, all his money to buy this healing. So he shows up now at Elisha's house. This wasn't a palace. This wasn't where the king lived. This is where Elisha lived. Probably a small house. Can you just imagine Naaman, this top general, at the front of this procession of chariots and horses and servants and wagons carrying all this money and gold? And they show up to the prophet's house. And Elisha doesn't even come outside. He doesn't. He sends out a messenger. Maybe Gehazi, we're not told who it is. Sends out a messenger to go talk to Naaman. And he says, okay, you want to be healed? Easy. Just go in the Jordan River and dunk yourself seven times. You'll be healed. But it says this. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. So he was expecting at least normal hospitality, right? Invite me into your home. This was a big thing in the Middle East, but the prophet didn't even come downstairs to say hi. He didn't stand before him at all. He sent a messenger and he was expecting to be healed. Just wave your hand. 
You, you can do that, right? That's an easy thing. This man of God, this magician or whatever he is, you can just heal me, right? I have all this money, all this power. You've got to do it for me. He says, eh, just go in the water. Dunk yourself. You got it. And it says in verse 12, Are not Abana, this is Naaman continuing on, Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He's angry. He's mad. Can't you just heal me? I have all this power. I have all this influence. Won't you just do this for me? Come on. He won't do it. I want to show you this map one more time. So they're probably here in Samaria. And Elisha says, okay, now go to the Jordan River. It's probably the closest major river. Just go dunk yourself seven times. And he said, no, I would rather go way back, hundreds and hundreds of miles back home to these other rivers in my home country because I don't want to defile myself in the muddy, disgusting Israelite river. You might think this is strange, but those rivers are actually much clearer. They're, they're nicer. They come out of the mi- mountains. They're beautiful. But this is a dirty, muddy river. Basically, Naaman is the meatloaf of the Old Testament. I would do anything to be healed, but I won't do that. Right? Anything but that. Somehow, Elisha knew. Because think about it. Elisha could have come out. He could have waved his hand and healed him. God has that power, but he didn't. He asked Naaman to do the one thing that he didn't want to do. The disgusting, humiliating thing. The humiliating thing. Now, I think that's pretty interesting. The one humiliating thing. That, that can happen in our life. Think about this with Naaman. He would rather, right now he's in a rage, he's angry. He would rather continue to live in that disgusting skin condition that was going to get worse. He was going to become an outcast. He would rather do that than get in that water. This is the one thing he doesn't want to do. And isn't this how we are too? There's these one or two, these things I just don't want to do because it's too humiliating. That person did it. They're the reason why we're having this conflict and we haven't talked in 10 years. They have to come apologize to me. I'm not going to go talk to them and make amends. It's humiliating. It's humiliating to say, my marriage is in shambles, but I'm not going to go to a counselor. We don't go to counselors in my family. We don't do that. Pride gets in the way. There's these things, we'll do anything, but not that. Not that. But then one of Naaman's servants goes to Naaman. Remember I said how important servants are in the story? So one of the servants says this. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? They're saying, hey, if he had said go climb the highest mountain, go slay a dragon, go to the far corners of the world and bring back this rose petal so that you can be healed, Naaman would have done it. He brought all the money, all his power, exerting all the influence he had. He was willing to go to great lengths. But there was one thing, one humiliating thing that he was unwilling to do. And that's what these servants are pointing out to him. Pointing out, I'll do anything but that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about this. That, That people would rather choose would rather choose anything but that one humiliating thing. He said it's the same, same thing we see in kids who are willing to skip play and skip supper rather than say, I'm sorry. Kids do that, right? We do that as adults too. We do. We're unwilling to do that. We do some great thing, but not that. 
That's exactly what God, through Elisha, asked Naaman to do. So he goes to the Jordan. He travels to the Jordan River. And I can just imagine him with his whole procession, all his soldiers, all these people who revered him and respected him, all his servants around him. And he goes up to this dirty, muddy, disgusting Israelite river. And he would have had to take off his, his robes or his clothes. He would have had like his military regalia on, right? He had his awards and honors and he had to take that off, get in his undergarments and step into the muddy, disgusting water. And he went into the Jordan. He got under the water once. And got under again and again. And he did it seven times. And after he came up out of the water the seventh time, it said that his leprosy was completely healed. And his skin was like that of a young boy's. The skin condition was gone. He had been healed. See, Naaman learned right there what I hope that you will learn as well. That God can and will heal us. He can and will save us. He can and will lift us up. But we have to be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's how God works. He says, you may have lots of power, lots of influence, lots of money, lots of whatever that people respect. He says, I don't care about any of that. I want you to be humble. That's the most humiliating thing Naaman could imagine. Maybe for us, we're like, I'd get in the water. Who cares? But for Naaman, that was the worst, the most humiliating thing. I don't want to do that. But when he did it, God lifted him up. So I use this phrase exalted because it it really encompasses all those things. It's God lifting people up, whether it's healing, whether it's raising people's hopes and expectations, taking them out of mourning or, or salvation itself. But it requires humility. In Job... Um, Job says that God sets the lowly on high and lifts those who mourn to safety. That's how God works. He asks us to come humbly before him so that he can show how great he is. How great he is. That's what Naaman had to learn. I I just finished a couple weeks ago Jason Romero's book. Many of you know him. He's a member of our church. He was sitting right here in the first service. I talked about it. Hey, Jason. But Jason wrote a book called Running into the Dark, uh, his memoir about running across the country. Ran over 51 miles a day on average, uh, which is pretty incredible. But even more incredible than that is that he is legally blind. And his eyesight is continuing to get worse and worse and worse and becomes narrow. He can't see at all when it's dim or dark. You can see people help him out and find a chair when you come in here on Sunday mornings. And he decided to run across America. But in his memoir, he talks a lot about how hard it was to admit and tell people that he was going blind. For a long time, he could pretend he could get away with not, people not knowing. And he didn't want to tell people. And then once people found out, he even lost a job because of it. So he tried to hide it and hide it and not tell people. But through this process and through the book, he realized that he, and he realized that he had to share his weakness. He had to humbly tell people what was going on. And there's one point at the very beginning of his run, I think he's in California somewhere, he was sweaty and disgusting, as any one of us would be if we ran 50 miles a day. He's disgusting, sweaty, and he needs to use the facilities, right? He finds this gas station, and they don't want to let him in because he looks disgusting, looks filthy. And finally, he has to say, I'm blind, and I'm running across the country. And they say, what? (laughs) We can help you out. But he had to share that, and it was so hard for him. And, And through that process, he learned that he has to tell people what's going on in his life. Because when we're humble, we'll be lifted up. So that's just one aspect that we see in our lives. But that's how God works, He wants us to admit that we need help. 
that we have problems, we have weaknesses, we don't have it all figured out. He wants us to be humble. Because it's those who humble themselves who will be exalted. Um, I, I was listening to an interview this week, and it was a guy I'd never even heard of, a guy named Scooter Braun. Um, I guess he's kind of a big deal. He literally has his face on the front of Success Magazine. I mean, you can't even make this up. I don't know. I mean, so this guy, he was talking, he's a music mogul. He uh, manages some of the biggest names in pop music, people that I don't even know what their music sounds like. Um, I'm not big into pop music. That's why I hadn't heard of him. Uh, Like uh, Justin Bieber, the Biebs, um, Ariana Grande, uh, Kanye West. um, I know all of your favorite artists. So he's a big deal, right? And he said that, And when he was about 20 and he was just starting to get into the music industry, he decided that he had a number in mind of money that he wanted to make because then his life would be good. Then he would have it made. So he set this number and he said it was somewhere over a million and less than a billion. He wouldn't say what the number was. It was high. It was high. And he said, once I have that, man, life will be good. Well, at 27, he had made that much money. And he said one day he was driving by the car wash that had been his very first job. He was driving by there and he realized how successful he was. Success magazine, right? So he calls up his dad and tells him, hey, you know, I I made that goal of the money that I wanted to achieve. I I have it all. And his dad was congratulating him. That's so amazing. You've done so well. You're such a hard worker. He says, but but dad, the problem is I'm not happy. In fact, he said, "My, my emotions just kept going the same. It was like it always was. In fact, it drove him into a deeper depression than he'd ever been in. Because he realized he had it all, but it wasn't enough. And most of us will never achieve that much money. We'll never have that. But that's the reality. No matter how much we have, no matter how much power, influence, money, it's never enough. God doesn't care about any of that. He cares if we're humble before him. He cares that we are humble before him, and then he'll lift us up. And that's how salvation works. Did you know that? Salvation doesn't work and say, God, I've been pretty good. Will you save me? If you forgive me, I'll do this, this good stuff for you. That's not what salvation is. When God saves us, when he exalts us and lifts us up, he says, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can only say, I brought nothing to the table. We can't say, hey, I'm partners with you. I did my part. You did your part. No, no, no. We say we have done nothing. We have humbly come before him. And that's what we say to God. I can do nothing. I have no money. I have no power. There's nothing I could ever do that would be enough. And God says, that's exactly where you're supposed to be. And I will lift you up. John Calvin, the theologian, said that our breast cannot receive his mercy until deprived completely of all opinion of its own worth. It's the humble that will be exalted. It's the humble that will be lifted up. So we could stop the story right there, couldn't we? That's a good point, isn't it? But I told you we were going to be contrasting two different people. There's two different people in this story. We've, We've been told about this great man, Naaman, but there's also another man named Gehazi. Because Gehazi was there when all this happened. And he thought, that guy gets saved? That guy isn't even part of the people of God. He's an Aramite. He's a sinner. And all they had to do was get in water? Come on. Because after Naaman is healed, he goes back to Elisha and he brings all his money and he says, can I give it to you as a gift? I just want to say thank you. 
And Elisha says, no, I don't need your money. They go back and forth, and Elisha says, no, just take it. I don't do this for money. It's not why I do it. Go and, and be in peace. Because Naaman, had, his life was completely transformed. He said, now I know that there's only one God in Israel. And I'm going to worship him. And he says, okay, I'm the second in command to the king. So there are times where I'm going to have to go in the temple with this king. And, and I may even have to bow down because the king leans on me. But I'm not bowing to that God. I'm bowing to the one true God. He's completely changed and transformed. So Elisha says, go in peace. But for Gazi, that wasn't enough. He thought, this guy gets to be saved? This sinner? So it says in verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. See, Gehazi was a, a good servant. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He was religious. He was part of the people of God. And sometimes it's religious people like that, religious people like us who can get into some trouble because we think that person I know what they've done they're a sinner they get to be saved no and we look down our noses at other people he says that Aramean he's not part of us how come he gets to be saved it's not fair so he chases down Naaman on the road as he's leaving. And Naaman gets down off his chariot and says, what can I do? And Gehazi invents this story. He says, do you, do you see what happened? There was just two prophets that came and they're very poor and very in need. So can you give us just a talent of silver and, and, and some clothes and it will be good to help these guys that are in need? And, Gehazi, and Naaman says, of course, you can have two talents of silver. So this isn't quite 750 million, but this is still a good chunk of change, right? This is a lot of money, especially for a servant of the prophet. Gehazi takes that. He has to have servants carry that money because it's a ton of money. Takes it and he hides it in his house. And then he goes back to Elisha. And Elisha says, hey, where were you? What were you up to? Gehazi says, oh, no, nothing. I didn't go anywhere. Elisha says, I know you did. And I know what you did. But it's not our place to accept that money. And he says, now, because of what you have done, Gehazi, you will receive Naaman's leprosy. And he was covered with leprosy. Not just one point, but his whole body was covered. See, Gehazi, we expect to be the servant. But he lies. He cheats. He invents this story. He deceives. He steals, basically. But worse than all of that, was that he elevated himself above Naaman. He said, mm, what God told you to do isn't enough. You've got to do more than that to be a good person, to be saved. You've got to do more than that. He judged him. He lifted himself up. Because of that, he was punished. So we, we know already that those who humble themselves will be exalted, but here we see that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Two sides of the same coin, right? If you're willing and hum humbly go before God and said, you are the one true God, I will humbly, I know there's nothing I can do, God will lift you up. But if you're saying, no, 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 I, I'm better than that. I'm better than others. When you do that, and religious people can be the worst, God will humble you. He'll bring you low. There's two sides of the same coin. 
In Proverbs, uh, we're told that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. This is what happens. When we build ourselves up, when we're arrogant, when we're prideful, that's when a fall is coming. And that's what God brings for Gehazi now. Judgment has now come upon him because of his pride. Because of his pride. And I do challenge us because we are the religious people. Those of you in here who are Christian, we're the religious people. We can fall into Gehazi's camp so easily. But please don't do it. Realize that it's only by grace you have been saved, so we must extend that grace to everyone, even the worst of sinners. Even the person we say, that person? How can they get that? John Golden Gay has one of my favorite quotes about this. He says that the difference between God and us is that God never thinks he is us. Isn't that true? We elevate ourselves to the position of God, judging other people in pride. And those are the people that God says, no, 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 I'm going to have to bring you low because of what you have done. So we need to all be wary. In, in 1 Corinthians 10:12, we read, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's easy for us to puff ourselves up. We can get prideful about the stupidest thing. I remember a few years ago, I was officiating a wedding, and um, I was, we were signing the marriage certificate afterwards, and, and a guy hands me a pen, one of the groomsmen. And I take it, and I'm writing. He's like, have you ever held an $800 pen before? I guess that's what this is. I said, yeah, it's so great. Signs just as well as my 25 cent pen. You know, I mean, why we get prideful about these stupid things? But that's what we do. We lift ourselves up and we elevate ourselves. We need to be humble before God because then he will lift us up. And we need to choose to be a humble servant. What's amazing in that interview with Scooter Braun, now I don't know much about him, but I, as far as I can tell, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. But this is what he said in this same interview. He says, I don't think human beings were made to be worshipped but to serve. He says this because he has some of the biggest, most worshipped musicians in all of the country in the world. He says, there's something bigger than us that can be worshipped. As human beings, we're here to serve each other, and that's the only way to keep our sanity. It's the only way. He realized this, and oh, who knows if he's a Christian or not. I hope so. I pray for him. But he realizes the truth. People aren't supposed to be worshipped. People aren't God. People can't lift themselves up above other people. No, we must be humble, and we must be servants to all. I love in this story that it was the little servant girl, that it was the servants who told Naaman that they should go, he should go wash in the water. They were the ones who helped them along. It's those who are willing to be servants who will be lifted up. Didn't Jesus teach us this way? He said in Matthew 20 that the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus flipped everything around. That's why he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted, People that nobody likes and looks down upon. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're the ones who will be lifted up. They're the ones who will be exalted. And Jesus, again, in Mark chapter 10, said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. But he didn't just teach this. He lived it. That's why he said in, in verse 45, For even the Son of Man, this is what Jesus called himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus had everything in heaven. He was the Son of God. And he emptied himself, lowered himself, and became a servant. He hung out with the people that no one else would go near. The lepers, he touched them even though they were outcasts, and he healed them. He served them. 
And then he wanted to show us what it was like to be a servant, so he got into the exact same waters that Naaman did to be baptized, even though he had no sin. He said it must be done to fulfill all righteousness so that he could be an example for us of what a servant, a humble servant is. And then Jesus did the ultimate act of servanthood by giving his life on the cross. But it says in Philippians 2 that that not only did he die, but three days later he was raised from the dead. And it says that God exalted him to the highest place so that every, uh, the name, and gave him the name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus descended as a servant. He lowered himself, humbled himself, and then was lifted up by God. And through Jesus' death, through his resurrection, he promises us the same exaltation if we will humble ourselves. So that's my question to you. Will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? Some of you in here have for too long thought Christians are weird, they're crazy, they're stupid. Bash them, your friends bash them. And and now to admit that maybe you were wrong, that maybe Jesus is the Savior and I need him. That would be the most humiliating thing. You'd have to go face your friends. But yet that's what Jesus calls you to. To humble yourself so that you will be exalted. For some of you, there may be something else that you need to do. Maybe you're the the grown person. You say, I I could never get into the waters of baptism. That's for kids. But you've got to do it. Jesus did it. Maybe you are the one who's saying, my marriage is in shambles and I've never wanted to see a counselor, but it's time. I need some help. We need some help. Or maybe you personally, you're struggling with someone and you don't want to admit you have issues. Everybody thinks things are going well in your life, but you need to be humble and get some help. Maybe you need to go track down that person and humbly make amends and ask for forgiveness even though you think they were the ones who wronged you. So, will you humble yourselves? I don't know what the thing is that you need to be humble about, but God is calling you to do something today. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You get to choose. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. It's a challenging word because we lift ourselves up. I do, Lord. And, and I pray that you forgive me for the times that I've elevated myself, looked down upon other people, been a hypocrite, Lord. I pray that you forgive me and I pray that you forgive all of us, that we could come before you humbly right now, realizing that there's nothing in our hands we bring. And, and I pray that you would lift us up because of that. For the two here in this service that we're going to to see lower themselves in the water of baptism, Lord, we pray that you would lift them up, that you'd show them how good you are. And for the person here today who maybe for the first time says, you are the Savior, you are the Lord. Lord, even though that's a humbling statement to make, because in pride we want to say, well, I can do it, I can can help myself, but, but Lord, I pray that as that person believes, Lord, that you would lift them up with your power. I pray that you lift us all up as we humbly come before you. In Jesus' name, amen.